The Overwhelmed Brain is a proud member of the Healing Broadcast Network. Are you annoyed by affirmations? When someone says to you, Think positively! Do you say, Wait, aren't you the guy who charged me $5,000 to attend your seminar and all I got was this lousy Think Positively t-shirt? That wasn't me. Look over there. Taxi. Drive. Fast. If affirmations feel like lies and positive thinking feels like denial, then get ready to start creating the life you've always wanted now. This is Paul Coliani, host of The Overwhelmed Brain, the personal growth show for the critical thinker. On every episode, we'll talk about practical, down-to-earth steps to help you improve your mood and keep you sane in this powerful journey we call life. I want to help you bridge the gap between your emotions and reason, causing you to discover why you do the things you do and what you can do to reach higher levels of happiness and lower levels of stress and overwhelm. My ultimate goal is to help you become empowered so that you can create the life you want. Today's quote is by Carl Jung, and it's this, When an inner situation is not made conscious, it appears outside as fate. Fate appears to be out of your control, yet you can choose to address what's bothering you or not. And what I take from this quote is that the underlying layer of what's going on inside of us, that undertone of how we always feel, even when we're happy, if we have that undertone of some sadness or depression or anger or any sort of undertone that hasn't been addressed yet, and these are repressed memories, repressed emotions These are the feelings and emotions and thoughts that you suppress during your life. And that's what creates the undertone of negative feelings that you may or may not always feel. But what this quote is telling me is that when we don't bring to our consciousness this undertone, these thoughts and feelings and emotions, when we don't bring those to consciousness, they appear in our outside world as fate. And what is fate? Fate is what we believe to be out of our control. Fate is when we just let go and let God or let go and let the universe uh, guide us to where it thinks we need to be or we're supposed to be. Fate, when we view it as something out of our control, then we lose our power. And fate can be seen as a positive thing. But when your fate is dire, when your fate has bad consequences, like, I just got fired from my job, it must have been fate, think about what's going on inside of you that may have led to your decisions, your behavior, all the action that you took while you were working there that led to your termination. That's just one example. We could apply this to almost any situation where the way things turned out weren't the way you wanted them. Now, some people believe that the way things turn out are exactly the way they're supposed to be. And to a certain extent, I have that 
spiritual belief. If something turns out the way I don't want it to be, it's an opportunity for me to learn a lesson from it. And the more lessons I learn, the more experience I gain, the more wisdom I gain. So I really welcome those fateful moments. And at the same time, I don't want them to happen. (laughs) So what I do is a little preventative maintenance. And how do I prevent things from happening? You can't always prevent things from happening, but you can reach inside to anything that you've repressed over the years and bring it to consciousness. When an inner situation is not made conscious, it appears outside as fate. That's like saying, I don't know why this keeps happening to me, so it must be fate. I don't know why I keep getting bad results, so it's out of my control. What? There's nothing I can do. Yet, there are things inside of you that could probably be addressed. There are emotions that maybe you haven't dealt with yet. There are thoughts and memories that you have that you don't want to deal with. And not dealing with it is denial. And when you deny what's happening in your world, it leads to what you perceive to be your fate. So if you at all feel this undertone of anxiety, sadness, depression, or anything else that makes you feel bad, and you choose not to address it, these things manifest themselves in other ways in your life. For example, honoring your personal boundaries is something I emphasize over and over again. And you'll hear me say, almost to the point of no matter what the cost, honor your personal boundaries. So if that means that you could lose someone that you love because you need to honor yourself at that moment, it might mean that you do that. What usually happens though, at least in my experience and from what I've seen with the people I coach, is that when they start honoring their boundaries, their life changes for the better. Because what happens is they honor their boundaries A person might find that a little unusual or have an adverse reaction to it. But now the person who honored their boundaries lives in integrity, lives with authenticity, feels better because he or she is expressing themselves. That's one way to make your inner situation conscious. When you honor yourself, you're expressing your full authenticity. And by expressing that authenticity... You are giving yourself more power over your, quote, fate. And, for example, if you choose not to honor your personal boundaries, your fate will manifest as a result of that decision, too. Fate manifests as a result of what you choose to address in your life. So, choosing not to address certain situations because they're too embarrassing or painful or because you feel guilty or shame That continues the perpetuity of life's unwanted events. It's like what I see in unhappy relationships. If you feel that your relationship is going downhill, then one or both of you is continuing to behave the same way, but expecting different results. You've heard that phrase before. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results leads to insanity. So the idea is for at least one person to change their behavior so that the other has to follow suit or reject that behavior. When they follow along, 
then they're going to modify and adapt their behavior as well. And things can shift and evolve in the relationship. If they refuse to adapt and one person's changing or growing and the other person's not because they reject it, they don't want to change, they're comfortable being in the stagnation that they're in or the closed-minded place that they're in because they don't see a problem with the relationship, then the relationship ends up dissolving. If the situation or the relationship is unpleasant and one or both of you stay the same person, you keep the situation unpleasant. If one of you changes, just to find out if the situation changes, then you give yourself more power to create your own fate or at least contribute to a fate that's more beneficial to you. The thing is, you'll never know if the situation will change until you do. You'll never find out if things could be better until you change your responses and behaviors. Things may never get better, but you'll never know unless you try. Like circumstances that haven't changed in years won't change on their own. One person has to change in order for the results to change. That doesn't mean that they will change, but it is the first step to change. It is the first step to advance any relationship, whether it's intimate, platonic, or family, any relationship that you want to see a change because you don't like the state it's in now, then you need to change the way you respond. You need to change the way you behave. And if you're unable to do that, then the situation never changes. Because quite honestly, do you expect the other person to change? Will they ever change? You know, most likely not. People in our lives that have always been that way won't change. And unless they tune into something like this or start reading personal growth stuff themselves, they probably don't feel a need to change. They don't feel like there's anything wrong, so they won't change. So it's up to you to make the change, to, to change your behavior. And if you find that you have trouble changing your behavior because you're always triggered by them or the things that they say always put you on the offensive, then it's time to work on yourself and not the relationship. It's time to work on things inside of you. It's just like we said before, the inner situation needs to be brought to consciousness. Otherwise, it turns into fate. Yes, I'm crossing the line saying you can control your fate, <laughs> but you do play a part in your fate. It's like that parable of a guy who survived a shipwreck and he's floating on the debris in the middle of the ocean and he decides that he's going to pray to God and he knows that God will answer his prayers and save him. So after a while, a boat comes by and the men on board the boat looked down at him and said, wow, do you need some help? And he said, no, thanks. God's going to save me. The men on the boat shrugged their shoulders and they just continued along. So for a few more days, he sits there floating in the ocean, parched, you know, hungry, and still praying to God, knowing that God's going to save him. So another boat comes along and they float up right next to him and say, we're here to help you. Hold on. And he yells up in his raspy three day old, no water voice and says, that's okay. God's going to save me. I've prayed. And they go, what? You look hungry and parched. He goes, no, 
I'm fine. God will save me. I have faith. And they, again, shrug their shoulders and go, okay, good luck. (laughs) And so uh, a few more days go by and the man dies and he goes to heaven. And then he finally has a chance to speak with God directly. And he said, why did you let me die? Why didn't you answer my prayers? And God said, I sent you two boats. What more do you want? And regardless of your religious beliefs, I love that story because it really speaks to us about how we can control our own fate. And sometimes the message that we're looking for to save the day isn't wrapped up in the package that we think it is. So remember that if you have any type of inner situation that you're either refusing to make conscious or just don't want to deal with, it's going to appear outside as fate. Let's go on to our next segment called Ask Paul. All right, this next segment is called Ask Paul, where I read your letters on the air, and I keep your privacy, of course, and I change a bunch of personal information so nobody knows it's you, but I like to read these on the air so that others can learn who might be in a similar situation as you. So here's this week's letter. Hi, Paul. Can you point me to a podcast or advice on the following? I have black and white parents, and racial issues have permeated much of my life. When I was younger, if I came home from school crying about kids picking on me because of my hair or my skin, my mom would either brush it off, stating that I was being dramatic, or she would get defensive, arguing that I somehow started the trouble. She would tell me to stop causing the problem. Since I knew it wasn't me causing the problem, I developed an outer shell to protect myself. However, this outer shell was built on small white lies that have continued up until last year. In the past, I made up so many things about my life because I felt that lying was a way to make me feel above others so that they would leave me alone. Fast forward many years and many white lies later. Last year, my life came to a head when I was caught in a lie. It was about a family member. Now, this family member wants to know why I lied. He's hurt. How do I fix this situation? Do I give him all the reasons I used to lie and apologize to him getting caught in the middle of my lies? I no longer lie, and I also no longer speak to another close member of the family that has been extremely toxic in my life. We all live close to each other and This one family member I lied about still reaches out to me. So, how do I admit my faults and at the same time explaining why it happened? Thanks in advance for the help, Jill. And that's not her real name. (laughs) Well, first, Jill, thank you for writing. That means a lot that you are asking me this question. Uh, It's funny that you are talking about uh, black and white parents because... Most of what you're asking doesn't really apply to what situation you're trying to resolve here. Or maybe it does and I'm not seeing it, but uh, really what it comes down to is you being 
caught in a lie. And I'm going to say congratulations. That's good. (laughs) And the reason it's good is because now that you've been caught, you've hit, you've reached the, the worst case scenario and there's nowhere to go but up. So now that everything is out of the bag, now that you've been caught, full disclosure may be in order. You know, what is the truth? Why don't you just tell the truth now? You see, when we lie, we're preserving ourselves. It's self-preservation. So let me ask you, what are you preserving now? You've been caught. It's time to fess up and reveal all. And at the same time, you can explain why you did it. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with saying, I effed up. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was in fear. I messed up bad. And I know I hurt people. All I can do is apologize. I'm sorry. And I know it will take some time to forgive me, but that's okay. I know what I did and I know I'll never do it again. Just fess up. Complete disclosure means you're done hiding. And people who don't trust you or want to accept your apology after that, they have their own issues to deal with. If they won't accept your apology and move on, there's nothing you can do. Just leave them alone and you can live with integrity. And those who want to stay connected will begin to realize that you're serious and truly sorry for what you did. Living your life in integrity and no longer saying lies to protect yourself or make things sound better than they are is where you want to stay after something like this. You said yourself, you've been lying most of your life up until a year ago. That's a long time. So if you want to change that, change the person you used to be, you need to go the opposite way and just start being honest. Just start living with integrity. And then when people ask and you have to admit what you did and what you said, that's how it goes. You know, there's if there's a situation where by admitting it, it will cause danger to you, then you might want to think twice. But, you know, for the most part, you just want to start living as honestly as possible with integrity so that you don't slip into those old ways. Now, I'm a full supporter of when the situation is too dangerous and a lie would be better, then you lie. I'm not going to tell the gunman at the bank who's trying to rob the bank that I also am carrying a gun and I'm about to shoot him. <laughs> that's not going to happen. I don't really do that. But, but that's uh, an idea. That's a, an example of what could happen. There are some situations where a lie would be better. But, you know, who are we to judge which situation that is? You just have to be careful and try not to protect others by lying to them. And that's one thing that, that's one of the reasons that we lie a lot is we want to protect others. We think that we're doing them a favor by protecting them because we're sensitive to who they are and sensitive to how they feel. So you don't want to continue lying when all you're doing is protecting someone else too. But start living with integrity. Start showing people that you're not that person anymore. You know, complete disclosure means that you're done hiding. Lying is hiding. And you know what? It's okay to eat crow for a while, if you know that term. It just means that it's okay that people are going to look down on you and know that you were a liar. 
That's fine. Full disclosure. But think of it in terms as someone betraying you in a relationship. You're either going to forgive them and give them another chance to prove that they're honest, uh, or you're going to shy away from them and you'll never want to trust them again. You're going to have those two types of responses, unfortunately, because one of them is not something that you want. But, you know, if somebody can't come to trust you again, that's not really your issue anymore. You've fessed up, you've apologized, and now you're someone of integrity. And no matter how people treat you after you fess up, no matter how people treat you after you're honest, the more you live with integrity today, the more they will see for themselves that you aren't the person you once were. And one apology is enough. (laughs) Just apologize, say you messed up, and move on. And if you're the type of person that continues to apologize, you know, I'm so sorry, I know I lied to you, I'm so sorry, and every time you see that person, I'm so sorry, it's not healthy. It's not healthy to continue apologizing, trying to mend things. If you feel the need to be apologetic every time you see or talk with certain family members, it's time to let it go so that they can begin their healing. And if they bring it up again and again, all you can say is, I know I messed up and I've apologized for it. I'm not that person anymore. I didn't like who I was and what I was doing and I thought I had to do it for selfish reasons. You can work on trusting me. Or you can keep on reminding me to feel bad about something I regret. I want a relationship with you, but I need to know that you want one with me too. Now, as for the toxic family member, stay away from them as much as possible. Sure, you can be honest with them as well. You can even share with them why you're staying away. But toxic family members want to pull you into their misery. And they're very good at it. And you can tell a toxic family member that you'd be happy to connect with them as long as they're not doing the behavior that is toxic. For example, if you don't drink alcohol tonight, I'd be happy to go out to eat with you. Or if you promise me you won't express your disgust with my decisions in life, I'd love to connect with you again. (laughs) Toxic people will be offended by truths like that, but at least they'll know where you stand. And they can choose to change, admitting that they're toxic or not. Or they can choose to close you off or anyone else that might actually want a relationship with them. Now, the best thing about toxic people in your life is that they're an excellent lesson in our personal evolution. They are a practice in personal boundaries. If you can honor your boundaries with toxic people, you can honor them with pretty much anyone. So you may not enjoy having toxic people in your life, but welcome them for the lessons, the education, and all the personal growth learnings that you're getting from them because they're the ones that are going to help you get along with almost everyone else in the world. Now, what can you do about this mess you created? Like I said, come clean, completely. Be okay that you messed up. And admit it. I remember when former President Bill Clinton got caught cheating on his wife in the White House. I thought, why lie? (laughs) Why lie about it? As soon as you're caught, which you will be because of all the evidence, you'll look even worse than you do now. Lying shows your character, just as 
telling the whole truth does. So which character are you playing? And which one do you want to be remembered by? Bill Clinton would have actually gotten some compassion if instead of lying and playing word games in court, he said this instead. You know what? I messed up. I was tempted in the moment and I messed up bad. I hurt a lot of people and I lost the respect I once had. I feel ashamed and I'm sorry. You know, people would still be upset, but at least he would have fessed up. And I guarantee you he would have gotten compassion because we all make mistakes. We all have the human ability to do stupid things. And people connect with people who make mistakes. People connect with people who do, quote, stupid things. He did some very stupid things. <laughs> so I'm not excusing his behavior, but you get the idea. You know, you messed up. And when you say, you know what, I did mess up, then people are going to be able to connect with that. They still may not like you. They still may not want to hang out with you. But those that do uh, will see you for who you've become, your authentic self. So that's my advice. Fess up to everything. Once it's all out on the table, there's nothing else that anyone can dig up on you. <laughs> You're already facing the fire that you set yourself. This is one of the reasons I chose to be honest on this show from the beginning. The more honest you are, the less people can dig up on you and use against you. <laughs> it's like when I was a kid, people would come up to me and make fun of me by calling me a name or something. So I would make my real friends start calling me that same name too. So, you know, the bullies had no power after that because I didn't resist the names they were calling me. And because my real friends called me that same name for fun, the bullies lost interest and stopped bothering me. This is what happens with pure honesty too. Once you accept and are honest about all your faults, embarrassing moments, shame, guilt, and everything else that you don't want people to find out about you, you release the fear that you'll be, quote, found out. You see how that works? Like when I get any sort of criticism today, whether personally or about the show, I'll say the following. Well, you might be right. <laughs> and most people who criticize want to get a reaction from you. They want to know they affected you so that you'll respond strongly, so that they can respond strongly in return, putting you in your place. But you can squash the energy behind what they're saying and just say, well, you may be right. Like if somebody says, you drive like an idiot, <laughs> whether it's true or not, just squash the energy behind it. You might be right. And then when they say, well, you need to stay off the road. You can say, you might have a good point there. <laughs> what you're doing is acknowledging them. You're not telling them that they're wrong. And you're not necessarily saying that you're wrong either. You may be right. And you have a good point. They're great answers to criticisms. Just let go of your attachment to being right. And then use a response like that. And you'll crush the energy behind any criticism or attack. So, I hope this helps you, Jill. Like I said, I don't know if what you were asking was more of a race issue or not. You know, I left some details out of the letter so it wouldn't really identify who you are. 
Uh, but even in your original letter, I didn't really get that this was a race issue. I know you had some race issues in the past, but this really just seems to be a matter of being caught in a lie and now trying to get along with family and explaining yourself and just wanting to have everything back to a good, positive place amongst family. So thank you again for writing, and I wish you the best. Coming up, news and you. I want to tell you about getoutofthemess.com. If you need legal service for any reason, whether it's uh, someone that you want an attorney to call and just take care of a situation, or perhaps have a letter or a document written up, uh, there's nothing more powerful than having an attorney's signature and letterhead uh, arrive at your mailbox. You've probably seen this before. I know I have. (laughs) But imagine having that power in your hands. If you don't already have an attorney and you think you might need one, go to getoutofthemess.com and Asha is there to answer your questions. Now, just to be clear, this is a service that provides expert teams of attorneys to help you out. They're paid by Legal Shield to help you and you pay Legal Shield some ridiculously small amount. It's like 20 bucks a month. So you're not going to be stuck Uh, getting an attorney for hundreds of dollars unless the situation calls for that but for the most part you can have access to these attorneys for just this low monthly fee so give her a call 678-355-8777 or you can email her at asha at getoutofthemess.com and in my personal opinion it's a lot easier talking to her for free than trying to figure out if your situation even qualifies for legal insurance. So give her a call, ask her any question you'd like, and she'll guide you in the right direction. All right, this section's called News and You. And I find an article, whether it's recent or semi-recent, like the one I'm going to read today is last year, but anything that affects us in a personal growth and development way. You know, I might read you an article that affects your emotions in some way, or I might read you something a little bit more practical like today, which is kind of a neat study that this uh, University of Royal Holloway, London uh, researchers found that they were able to tell the difference between a fake laugh and a real laugh. Or I should say what they said, which is fake laughter doesn't fool the brain. They actually did a study with 164 people and showed them videos of people laughing. And some of them were laughing naturally, and some of that some of them were doing it forced. You know how a forced laugh, right? <laughs> that was a real laugh, and this is a forced laugh. <laughs> you know, it's kind of different. Maybe you can tell, maybe you can't, but I bet you can tell. I bet because they figured out that there are different areas of the brain that were activated when they were watching one video over another. Now, this is great because the participants weren't aware that they were doing a study on detecting fake laughs versus real laughs. So they weren't expecting anything. They just watched the videos and were tested to see how their brains responded when they were shown someone 
laughing for real, and someone forcing it. The researchers said, During our study, when participants heard a laugh that was posed or forced, they activated regions of the brain associated with mentalizing in an attempt to understand the other person's emotional and mental state. Now, what does that mean? That means that when you hear a real laugh, you can almost empathize to the point where you're laughing too because it feels funny. It, it just feels good to you. But when you hear a fake laugh, something inside you activates and turns on the logical process center in your brain and goes, what are they? Are they really laughing? That didn't sound right. It didn't feel right. You know, fake laughter is detectable. If you're observant, you can detect it in others. And the reason you can detect it in others is because you've probably done it yourself and you know what it sounds like. And I think the fake laughter is not only just sound, but it's also the way you physically move as well when you're laughing. It's kind of like when you can tell the difference between a fake smile and a real smile. You just know the difference. You may not be able to pinpoint what's different, but you know the difference from the facial expression. It's the same with laughter. You know the physical differences. You can hear the auditory differences, but you're not quite sure what's different unless you've been studying this stuff. And you might know, but if you pay attention, you can tell when someone has a fake laugh. I can tell. I, I like to joke a lot when I'm in social situations. I like to have fun. But sometimes I get that fake laugh and I realize, oh, that joke didn't go over so well. Then I back off and, and understand that, okay, I'm going a little too far, this joking and having fun. Let me just bring it back so we can have a normal conversation again. Well, let me tell you this. You are good at detecting a fake laugh because almost everyone has forced a laugh when they really didn't mean it. So you know what it's like. And, you know, unless you're wrapped up in your own story and situation and you're not paying attention to other people, you're going to detect a fake laugh. If you've done it yourself, you can detect it. The researchers say that when the participants observed a forced laugh, the part of the brain responsible for movement and another responsible for senses were activated, which thought that might mean that the person hearing the fake laugh was, quote, trying it on to figure out what the laugh meant. Now, this is all subconscious. This is all things that you're doing in the background. And you might have a feeling like, oh, that laugh didn't feel real. You just have this feeling inside of you that something is not right about how they just laughed. I recommend trying it on all the time. Try laughing, either for real or in your head, just like someone else is laughing, and see how it feels. Does the laugh you're imitating feel real or fake? Now, the reason I, I like or chose this story about laughing is because some people really buy into the concept that if you laugh enough, that you'll eventually feel happy. It's like smiling all the time when you're depressed. You know, laughing and smiling while you're depressed is a method of trying to rewrite what's going on. You, you keep doing it more and more and more, and then eventually you forget about your depression or you forget about your sadness, forget about all the negative stuff going on inside of you because you keep laughing and smiling. And some people believe that's a way to rewrite the programming in the brain. I'm here to say that that 
can work. But both methods, smiling all the time or laughing all the time or both, are also good at stuffing down negative emotions because they're a form of denial. It'll take a lot longer to deny yourself to happiness than to express your pain to achieve freedom from negativity, if that makes sense. The thing is, forcing laughter as a form of laughter therapy is a great way to avoid addressing your pain. It can work because if you do anything long enough, it will saturate your life. But will the negative emotions truly be written over in your mind and body? If you laugh or smile all the time as a way to overwrite how you feel, will those negative feelings inside ever go away? Now, this article isn't about covering negative emotions so much as it is about how we're so good at detecting inauthentic behavior. Why? Because we know how to be inauthentic. So we can tell when others are doing it too. And that's why instinct can be trusted. Instinct is your mind and body's way of telling you that something's up. You had that feeling, right? Something's different. Something's up about this situation. Or I'm not sure I believe this person because something isn't right. Instinct is a feeling. It's a physical sensation that leads to a thought or a behavior. When your instinct kicks in, there's a reason. Now, what happens is we tend to use logic to negate our instincts. But remember, our instincts will always be aware of our environment and the people that are in it, even when we're not conscious of it. So just be open to the feelings that come up for you. I don't know if you heard my episode where I talked about when I was at a rest stop once when I was traveling. And as I was pulling into the parking lot, there was a guy in a car a few spaces away staring at me. I mean, like drilling his eyes into mine. And I parked my truck and he kept staring at me. Then he got out of his car, continuing to stare at me, walking over to my truck. And I'm like, oh boy, where's this going? And my instinct kicked in and I go, I know he's going to ask for money. (laughs) This is usually what happens is somebody comes over and asks for money. And so what he did was after he got out of his car and he kept staring at me, uh, I rolled my window down a little bit because I wasn't sure what to expect. And he came up with this long convoluted story about needing gas or needing gas money. And he just talked to a cop on the highway and his family is with him and Anytime your instinct kicks in and then somebody tells you this long, drawn-out story, most of the time, it's something made up. Not all the time, but you got to use your instinct to figure it out. But most of the time, it's made up. I've had this happen over and over and over again uh, in different cities that I've lived in, in different places I've traveled, and people just come up <laughs> and they they spew this entire, long, convoluted story quite frankly, hoping to hypnotize you into giving them money, which does work. If you keep telling a story, eventually you're going to want to get rid of them somehow. And the only way to get rid of them is to give them money. They know this. They know that if they're there long enough, you're going to get more and more uncomfortable and you're going to go, you're going to give them money. And in part of his story, he said, you know, and I talked to this cop on the highway and I said, okay, wait, you just talked to a cop. And he said, yes. And trusting my instinct, And 
my olfactory senses, I could smell that he had alcohol on his breath. And I said, you just talked to a cop. And he goes, yes. You know what? I said, I don't believe you. I said, you smell like alcohol. And if you just talked to a cop, we probably wouldn't be here talking right now. And then he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and walked away. And I was like, I knew it. (laughs) I knew when I parked my car that this guy was just going to be begging for money or something. You know what? It's okay to beg for money, but don't tell me a story. Just come up to me and say, you know what? I made a stupid mistake. I'm broke. I need money. I'd probably be more compassionate towards that than if you just made up a story and tried to con me. So that's what I did. I was open to the feelings that came up for me. And that's what you need to be too. Be open to your instincts because that is your unconscious. That is your subconscious mind telling you there's something up. Now, when it comes to someone laughing, I know we're talking about laughing, but this is in general. You can tell when someone is what I call incongruent, when their words don't match their behavior, when what they say doesn't match what inflection someone would use if they were saying the same thing. So here's a way to open up a little bit more to your instincts. First, don't get sucked into someone else's story. Just be an active observer. And how you do that is when they're telling the story, don't be so compassionate that you're empathetic. Does that make sense? Don't get sucked into the story when they tell you uh, a sob story about their dog that died and you go, oh, I lost the dog too. And now you're becoming empathetic and you start to feel sorry for them. Don't get into your own story when they're telling their story. So that's one way to just stay separated from what they're from what they're telling you. Number two is when you actively observe someone else's behavior, you're not relating to their stories and remembering your own stories. You're taking mental notes of their behavior and then checking in with yourself to figure out if that behavior is congruent with what they're saying and how they're saying it and what their body language is telling you. Another thing, try it on. Try on their laugh, their inflection, and see if it feels authentic to you. That's a great way to do it. Somebody laughs and says, ha, 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 ha. You could try that on. Well, the first laugh, ha, 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 was not very authentic, but the second one of me laughing about that laugh was. So you can tell the difference when someone's laughing. You can tell when there's a genuine emotion coming out of it or if it's forced. Now, these methods aren't surefire ways to tell, but they are one clue to a bigger picture. And, you know, detecting fake laughter may not necessarily be something you're interested in, but I think it's a good idea to be aware of any inauthentic behavior. Because once you're aware of inauthentic behavior in one little segment of what someone's doing, maybe there's inauthentic behavior going on somewhere else as well. Not always, but it's, like I said, every little piece is part of a bigger picture. And if you sense fake laughter and you'd already been sensing other suspicious things, then you have a bigger picture. Again, fake laughter by itself doesn't necessarily mean an inauthentic person, but it may mean that they're probably not as funny as they think they are. (laughs) I learned this when I was married. I thought I was hilarious 
all the time. But it turns out that I'm only funny to some people some of the time. <laughs> I guess I had to learn that so I wouldn't be so caught up in my ego. The whole idea behind all of this of what I'm talking about today isn't focused on laughter, but it's focused on communication in general. You know, I'm talking about laughter and how to spot fake laughter because it was about that news article. But really, it is all about detecting inauthentic behavior, learning how people communicate, and if that communication is genuine. Being observant of behavior allows you to fine-tune your senses. Fine-tuning your senses is fine-tuning your instinct. Now, if you find people fake laughing around you all the time, <laughs> maybe there's a deeper message there. Maybe that same joke you tell time and time again is simply not funny. <laughs> now, this is all small stuff, but like I said, everything adds up to a whole. Observe the behavior in others and notice when you sense inauthenticity. You'll know it because you'll feel it. You don't have to keep your radar on all the time, but it's fun to do in short spurts. I observe behavior quite a bit. For example, I find it fascinating when someone gets angry and uses their finger a lot, pointing at the person they're angry at. Why? Why are they pointing? What's going on there? You know, I'm sure it's a threatening gesture of some sort, but what else is there to that? And then I try it out myself. Right now, I'm pointing my finger and I go, why would I do that if I get angry? Is it to feel threatening or bigger than I am? Does having a finger in your face feel like you're being controlled or put in harm's way of some sort? Why do I need to use my finger? <laughs> I'm motioning, I'm gesturing at my desk right now. You can't see what I'm doing, but I am doing it. And th this and all kinds of things that you can try on and, and see what you feel, see what you come up with. It's a great way to learn how we communicate and figure out why we do the things we do. Anyway, all this research is pretty fascinating. I've always been interested in human behavior, but to know that we automatically detect forced laughter is quite insightful. That means that you can actually trust your instincts when it comes to this, and you'll be aware of other human behavior that we can probably tell isn't really authentic. Again, you don't have to be conscious of it. You just have to be open to receiving the message from your subconscious mind, your instinct, your body's telling you, you get that feeling, your body's telling you there's something wrong about this picture. You won't always be right, but the more you observe and the more you fine-tune your senses, you'll be right more often than not. This next segment coming up is What's On My Mind Right Now. All right, this next segment is a more personal segment that I call What's on my mind right now. And what is on my mind right now is the child that is my stepfather. I've talked about my stepfather lots of times and how he has affected my life, both good and, well, bad, but all good because I took many lessons from him. In fact, a lot of this show is because of him. <laughs> so I attribute the uh, popularity of this show because of all the dysfunction my stepfather 
brought into my life. I appreciate it. It's a wonderful learning experience. I don't, uh, I hope that no one has to go through it, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I went through all the pain and hardships that I had to go through with him. Now, what I want to talk about is how he has systematically turned the family against him. Now, I won't speak for any one person or family member because they have their own relationship with him. But I do want to tell you of my perception of what this abusive, alcoholic, and highly dependent person is when there's no one around for him to depend on. You know, he came back and uh, I told this story before too. He came back and knocked on my mom's door when I was there. And I didn't think I would ever see him again, but the thoughts were crossing my mind that I wonder what I'd say if I did see him again. So when he knocked on the door and I went to answer it, I did not expect to see him there. And there he was smiling, saying, hi, Paul. And I was like, oh, (laughs) now's my opportunity. This is when, this is a moment when you dig in and go, Who am I going to be? Am I going to be the man I've become who can stand up for myself and those he loves? Or am I going to be the child that he remembers me being? And it was at that moment I decided that I wanted to stay and be the man that I've become. You know, that masculine aspect. And so he asked if my mom was home. And I said, she doesn't want to see you. And I tell you what, that was hard to say. I've never stood up to him like that. I've always just let him be who he needed to be. He could do anything he wanted. But um, he said, oh, I just want to see the dog or something like that. And I was like, well, um, I don't think mom wants you here. And, you know, although I was kind of using my mom as a scapegoat, it was true. She didn't want him in the house. And she was so glad to be rid of him. And here is my opportunity to, to keep him out of the house. So, you know, I did say my mom said it's not good to come in, but I was also standing up to him uh, for the first time ever. So I think I did pretty good. And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, okay, and then walked away. And then I shut the door and I went into my mom's uh, office in her house and I said, "Uh, you know who was just here? And she's like, what? And she ran out and ran out the door and started talking to him outside. And I was like, what is she doing? Why doesn't she just let him go? Later on, she came in and said, I just don't want to create trouble. And I was like, what do you mean? I thought you didn't want to associate with him. She's like, you know, he's still in the family's life and I don't want to create trouble. So I wanted to make peace with him out there. And I was like, okay. You know, that, you know, my mom has made decisions that uh, are suiting her fine. So who am I to step in and say anything? He didn't come in the house, so she did good with that, and she decided to take it up with him herself, which was a great way to do it. I think that's important that she decided to go out there and face him directly and talk to him herself. So that means that I don't have to be around the next time he tries to come in the house, which hopefully doesn't happen, and I haven't seen him since. Now, one of the things on my mind, and the reason I want to talk about this is because on a previous show, I talked about codependency. And my mom and my stepfather had a codependent relationship. When he would 
break glass, when he would get in trouble, when he couldn't pay his bills, she took up the slack. She cleaned up the mess. It was a very uh, dependent, enabling situation, and they both got something from it, but it was highly dysfunctional. So here he is uh, after he moved far away and then comes back after a year, after everyone is settling down into this new situation, this new family dynamic without him, and now he's showing up again. And I realize that there's no way he can live on his own because he hasn't learned how to be responsible for himself. And dysfunctional people who relied on other people to fulfill the needs of their dysfunction don't learn responsibility. So when they're out on their own, like he was, he couldn't figure out how to live on his own without someone there to take up the slack. And because he's an alcoholic, there's a lot of slack that comes up. I'm not, I'm not making fun of alcoholics, but he was a very dysfunctional alcoholic that still has a problem with alcohol, as far as I know. And because he's in that inebriated state, he is forgetting things. He's forgetting to pay bills. People are getting upset with him. So no matter where he goes, he doesn't have someone to take up the slack and clean up his mess. And when you're that dysfunctional, bad things are going to happen to you or what you perceive as bad. So to see him starting to intertwine his life with the rest of my family uh, was hard. And this happened right before I left my home state. And he's starting to show up here and there. But this is the good news. The good news is that certain members of my family are standing up saying, sorry, I can't help you. Now that is vital. That's almost like an intervention in itself. My mom, sorry, there's nothing I can do to help you. And other members of my family, sorry, I can't help you. I have my own family. I have my own problems to deal with. I can't deal with you on top of those problems. Now I'm making up words here, but that's pretty much what it boils down to. Sorry, I can't help you. And I just heard recently that he's moved away again, which means that now he's being forced to learn how to take care of of himself. Now, there's some sadness in that. There's a person who has a family, and it does seem like it's very sad. But every time he's around, he creates anxiety, and and he creates a what I call a vortex of misery everywhere he goes because he's just too hard to be around. That doesn't mean that when he's on his own that he could sober up in many ways. Imagine that. Imagine if he's sobered up in the ways he needs to sober up, whether that's stopping drinking, getting his life together, getting his obligations and responsibilities met, and he becomes an independent, healthier person. That could mean his reintroduction into the family as a more stable person. There's no way to say it, I guess. At least a more acceptable Uh, Maybe we can learn to love him in a different way. I have let him go in my life and don't really require seeing him again. So his existence in my life doesn't really matter. But others might want him back. I mean, he's a father to some people and he's a brother to some people. And maybe one day he'll clean up and everything will be fine. But until then, I do believe he does need to learn, probably the hard way, how to really take care of himself. As soon as one becomes 
less helpless and more helpful to themselves, then others want to be around them. Others realize that it's not about just giving and giving and giving until you're exhausted. Because when he's around, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're giving and giving and giving until you're exhausted. But when someone comes into your life that doesn't have that uh, need, those dependencies, and they are functional in many ways where you don't have to take up the slack, then you feel safer around them. You feel better, happier, and you feel more content with them in your life. So that's what's on my mind. That person that has uh, been the subject of many of my stories over the last two years still comes in in some ways to help me understand and explore where I am today with all my healing and growing and allows me to explore if I have any other work to do around that. This show is here for you and for those that are great at their own self-help. But if you're looking for more one-on-one support where we can address your specific issues, visit theoverwhelmedbrain.com and click on Get Coaching for more information. And keep in mind the inner circle I talked about last week. I'm considering opening the doors to the Overwhelmed Brain Inner Circle where you get access to all my digital books and worksheets along with a group question and answer call uh, once or twice a month with me. I haven't decided on how many times I'm going to do that yet, but this is something I'm feeling out right now to see if you have an interest in some sort of a private group. What would you pay? The podcast and blog are free, and I'm going to keep coming back week after week to do this show. So I want to make sure everyone's covered. But the inner circle is where we can be a bit more interactive. I've had some interest at people telling me that they'd pay $29 a month. Would you pay more? Would you want to pay less? What are your thoughts? I want to keep the price fair both to you and me. So let me know. Send an email to VIP, as in very important person, but just the letters VIP at theoverwhelmedbrain.com. And I want to thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I thank everyone who has purchased a book or worksheet, left a review in iTunes or Amazon, or used the Amazon link to shop as you normally would, which gives us pennies for every dollar you spend. Hey, that's something, and it's a way to give back. And I love giving you everything I know every week. And I want to be there for you whenever I can. If you'd like to give back to this show, just stop by the website and take a look. I make it easy to return the kindness with the Amazon button or the donate button or even the contact me button where you can just share with me your gratitude if this show has changed your life or at least your perspective. I love getting your letters and I read and save each and every one of them. And I want to thank Asha, the independent associate for Legal Shield. I want you to get this service because having it is directly proportionate to your happiness and peace of mind. Let go of the stress knowing that you have a team of attorneys on your side. 
you got a legal question, you can call them and talk to an actual attorney. And not for hundreds of dollars an hour. Asha pays less than $20 a month. So I know you'll get an incredible deal when you talk with her. Finally, affordable legal insurance for a fraction of what a lawyer would charge in an hour. Contact Asha at getoutofthemess.com or visit getoutofthemess.com, which will send you to the main site where they'll know we sent you. And tell Asha I said hi. (laughs) She would love to know that I sent you there. And to close the show today, I want to talk about fate. Some people believe that fate happens no matter what we do. Some people believe we make our own fate. Regardless of what you believe, whether it's karma or God's plan or the very practical yet ultimate consequence of cause and effect where every decision you make ripples into your future, (laughs) creating the path you lay before yourself, regardless of any belief you have, when fate is presented to you, you have a choice in your response. That choice can be productive or counterproductive. That's all there really is. I suppose there's neutral too, but really every choice you make is either one or the other. You're going to treat your results as positive stepping stones or negative happiness destroyers. When fate comes, my advice is to take it as a positive stepping stone no matter what. Even the little things. For example, I had a coaching call yesterday where at the most inconvenient moments, my client had someone knock on their door three times within one hour. This person could go a whole day without a single knock, but within that hour, during our call, it happened three times. You know, during a coaching session, there can be some sensitive moments, but, you know, did I get upset? Heck no, because... My perception is that fate, even tiny specks of fate, such as someone interrupting a call, is a positive stepping stone and should be treated as something that will absolutely be beneficial to all involved. I call interruptions like that divine timing. And it has nothing to do with my beliefs and everything to do with what I want for results. Do I want to get upset being interrupted and then feel bad and moody going forward or do I want to see this as something perfect that was supposed to happen in my mind the quote supposed to happen feels a lot better than the quote what's with all these interruptions (laughs) it's like that line in the movie the matrix reloaded it's part two of the matrix trilogy the three main characters just finished a conversation with one of the antagonists in the film that didn't go the way they expected. Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus get into the elevator, and then they stood there a bit confused. The elevator door closes, and Neo says, Well, that didn't go so well. And then Morpheus asks Neo, Are you certain the Oracle didn't say anything else? Hoping that Neo got some divine guidance that the rest weren't privy to. Neo said, Yes. And then Trinity says, maybe we did something wrong. Where Neo responds, or didn't do something. And that's when Morpheus realizes that it was all part of a bigger picture. That fate thing. Where everything that happens, happens for a reason. 
He saw the confrontation they just had as a positive stepping stone and says, No, what happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way. And then Neo asks, How do you know? Morpheus responds, We are still alive. There's a lot being said here without really saying anything. You know, what I take from it is that as long as you're still alive, then everything that happened was a positive stepping stone. Now, I know that's extreme thinking, (laughs) but imagine if you thought that way about every little challenge in life. Well, it didn't kill me, so it must be positive. If just being alive is what you're grateful for with each and every challenge that comes your way, your life takes on a whole new meaning and purpose. You see things differently and you experience the world differently. I'm not saying that you should absolutely adopt this attitude, but I am saying try it on every now and then just to see if it changes your perspective. And with that, open your mind and step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to evolve your consciousness and awareness. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Someone wants to borrow money from you. They've borrowed from you in the past, and they may or may not have taken forever to pay it back. However, you're getting kind of annoyed that they keep asking. So you build a boundary that says, that's it, I'm no longer lending money to that person. So that person asks you for money, and you say, sorry, I can't lend you money this week. And they say, well, can I borrow half of it then? Like, instead of $20, can I borrow $10? And you give in and say, all right, you can have $10, but I need it back as soon as possible. So the boundary about that person borrowing money from you was created, but it was crossed. But here's the part that some people don't get. That person didn't cross your boundary. You did. You allowed yourself to compromise your own boundary. And guess what happened? You feel bad for doing it. And you're now more annoyed that that person asked for money and you gave in once again. So we're going to touch on this a lot in the show. But in that example, that person isn't busting through our castle walls and compromising our boundaries. We're letting them walk right in. It's true that there are people that will bust right in. 
but those are the ones that have learned that you'll open the door anyway. So they'll just come in anytime they want from that point on. It's like the mythological rule that you shouldn't let a vampire in your house. If you never let them in, they can't come in. But if you do let them in, now they can come and go as they please. So how can you define your boundaries and stick to them? And should you...